Welcome to the Politics of Health. Each week, we'll talk about how healthcare in the United States affects politics and how politics affects healthcare. We'll go over major policies related to healthcare as well as recent news events. I'm Greg Wellman, and I'll be your guide through the labyrinth. Welcome to the Politics of Health. Welcome to Episode 2 of Politics and Health in the U.S., I altered the title of the podcast from the politics of health mainly because it appeared that there was another podcast called The Politics of Health, which was centered on some individuals who were working out of the United Kingdom. So as not to kind of conflict with that title as we deploy this one, I switched over the name to Politics of Health in the United States. So welcome to the second episode. Hopefully uh, the first one wasn't overly lengthy for your uh, podcast listening. The following podcasts will be a bit shorter depending upon the nature of the information. But going over the ACA was kind of a long endeavor. It's, It's a big act. There's a lot of pieces and parts to it. And there's more than what I covered. So hopefully that was a good synopsis, which sets the stage for us to go forward. In the second episode, I want to get into more of the politics of the Affordable Care Act by talking a little bit about some of the lawsuits that have occurred and the modifications that they have made on the ACA. So in our first podcast, we talked about Medicaid coverage under the ACA. And the purpose of expanding Medicaid coverage under the ACA was to try to get at that 50 million Americans who did not have health care by raising Medicaid coverage for the impoverished. So as we stated in the first podcast, different states apply different poverty levels to required eligibilities under Medicaid. So in some states, it might be, you might be at, have to be at 25% of the federal poverty level, the FPL, as I'll refer to it. In other states, you may be over 100% of the FPL. And so by trying to expand Medicaid and get at the most impoverished of that 50 million, the ACA set out to establish another mandate. And that was that all states in the United States would have to raise coverage under the ACA to provide a standardized 133% of the FPL as the cutoff for everyone. So in essence, it said to different states, to all states in the U.S., you will use 133% of the federal poverty level as the cutoff point. So anyone who is at 133% or below, you will need to cover. Now, Medicaid coverage, a lot of that funding comes at the state level. So under the Affordable Care Act, it was stated that the U.S. government or federal funding would cover all of that through 2016. So... If a state was at, let's say, 75% of the FPL to receive Medicaid coverage and they raised up under the Medicaid expansion to 133% of the FPL, 
then the federal government would channel them the monies that they had to spend for all of the individuals who were above 75% of the FPL and below 133% of the FPL. And again, that would be 100% coverage through 2016. That would be uh, decreased after 2016 to 90% coverage by the year 2020. Now, the penalty for a state under the Affordable Care Act for not abiding by the Medicaid expansion was that they would uh, forfeit those additional dollars, which, of course, they wouldn't necessarily be spending if they didn't adopt the Medicaid expansion. But more importantly, they could forfeit all federal funding to existing Medicaid programs. So there is some federal funding that flows to Medicaid in addition to state funding. And so basically what the ACA was saying to each state was you need to go to 133% of the FBL to standardize coverage under Medicaid for all states. And if you don't do so, then uh, we may pull all of your federal funding under Medicaid. Well, it didn't take long for this to get challenged, and many states came forward and sued the ACA, declaring that uh, this was unconstitutional and that the ACA may in fact be unconstitutional as well. So this travels to the Supreme Court. So when the Supreme Court deliberated uh, on the lawsuit and on the ACA, they had to determine uh, a couple things because in addition to a lawsuit being filed stating that the Medicaid expansion was unconstitutional, a companion lawsuit was traveling along with it, which basically declared that the individual mandate was also unconstitutional and that you could not require individuals, even though it's through a taxation process, to carry health insurance. Okay, so we talked in the first podcast about more of the details of the individual mandate requiring each individual do so, and the penalty for that was assessed during your income tax filing. And we talked a little bit more about the Medicaid expansion. So the, the Supreme Court agreed to deliberate on these two components, including whether or not they were constitutional and also whether they were severable. And what we mean by severable would be that if the Supreme Court were to rule that the individual mandate was unconstitutional, they could either make the entire ACA null and void or unconstitutional, or they could surgically remove the individual mandate and leave the rest of it intact. And that's what we call severability. Because there's a lot of components, as we discussed in the first podcast, of the ACA. So on the individual mandate, the Supreme Court ruled that it was constitutional based on congressional powers to tax. This ruling was five to four. So basically the Supreme Court said that, that the individual mandate was in fact constitutional. So since this podcast is about the politics of health, let's analyze this from a political perspective. Now, at the time, we have nine justices on the Supreme Court. Scalia and Kennedy 
were Reagan appointees. Now, again, by saying appointees mean that they were nominated by the president. Those, those appointments are approved by the Senate, etc., etc. But for expediency, I'm just going to say which president um, they were appointed by. So President Reagan appointed Scalia and Kennedy. Thomas was an appointee of President H. Bush. And then Roberts and Alito were appointees of President W. Bush. So we have five justices at this point that are basically appointees of Republican sitting presidents. Ginsburg and Breyer were appointees of President Clinton. And then Sotomayor and Kagan were appointees of President Obama. So now looking at how the individual justices ruled on the individual mandate and determined that it was in fact constitutional, then Republican presidential appointees Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito voted uh, no, that it is uh, not constitutional. Ginsburg Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, Democratic presidential appointees, voted yes. Roberts, a Republican president appointee, sided with them and also voted yes as well. So the Supreme Court at this time determines that the individual mandate is in fact constitutional. Because they ruled that it was constitutional, they did not have to formally rule on severability or the question of whether or not, if it was deemed to be unconstitutional, it could be surgically removed from the ACA. Now, this is important, and it's going to be important in one of our, um, probably our next podcast, which will cover Texas versus the United States which is a a current and critically important lawsuit which is traveling its way through federal district courts. And so although they did not formally rule on severability of the individual mandate, basically basically answering the question, is the individual mandate so critically important to the ACA that if it does not exist, then it is best to just declare the entire ACA unconstitutional. You know, although they did not have to rule on that, the dissenters, okay, so in a Supreme Court ruling, we know for the most part what most people are thinking because they file opinions on that. The majority opinion, which would be the justices that, that sort of carried the day in their votes, is filed and includes the rationale. Sometimes um, individual justices will split off under the majority and write their own opinions. And then the dissenters, those individuals who did not carry the day, can also write dissenting opinions, which sometimes can be as lengthy as the majority opinion, sometimes even more lengthy. And they're very interesting to read. The dissenters, um, although they did not have to rule on severabilities, said that if the individual mandate was deemed to be unconstitutional, the entire ACA would have to be invalidated. So I want to throw that out there only because 
we're going to be coming back to that issue under Texas versus the United States. Now, on the Medicaid expansion, the ruling was that the requirement of all states to expand Medicaid to 133% of the FPL was unconstitutional. And it was unconstitutional because it was coercive to the states to say that you have to, uh, you're required to do this, and if you don't do so, we're going to financially penalize you, and we're going to financially penalize you by removing the, the money that you have, okay, under Medicaid at this point in time. The ruling that it was unconstitutionally coercive to the states was actually carried in a 7-2 to two vote. Seven justices agreeing that it was unconstitutionally coercive, and that was Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, Roberts, and Alito, which were all appointees under Republican presidential White Houses, but they were joined by Breyer, who was appointed by President Clinton, and Kagan, who was appointed by President Obama. The only dissenters on that were Ginsburg, a President Clinton appointee, and Sotomayor, a President Obama appointee. Once deemed to be unconstitutional, the next critical decision was, will the entire ACA be deemed unconstitutional? Now, we know this must not have carried the day because this happened virtually right out of the gate when the ACA was put into law, and it is still here. And in fact, the Supreme Court ruled that although it was unconstitutionally coercive to require states to opt in or all of them to move to 133% of the FPL, that it was not severable, that they basically could surgically remove this requirement and basically make it a voluntary opt-in or opt-out. Each state could decide whether or not that they were in or out, and then those that would come in would receive the federal funding. The ruling that it was severable came in a 5-4 to vote with Ginsburg and Breyer, President Clinton appointees, Sotomayor and Kagan, President Obama appointees, and Justice Roberts, a President W. Bush appointee. These individuals voted yes. Scalia, Kennedy, appointed by President Reagan, Thomas by President H. Bush, and Alito, appointed by President W. Bush, voted no. So as a result, we move to the Medicaid expansion being able to be opt-in to at the individual state level. And currently, I believe there are about only 14 states that have not opted into the Medicaid expansion. And as we would expect, um, because of the politics of this, these are states that are predominantly Republican-based um, legislatures. There are about 36 states 
that are in various stages of the Medicaid opt-in option. Let's move on to another of the major challenges to the Affordable Care Act, and that was the requirement that all health plans provide contraception to their beneficiaries. So again, under the ACA, there was a qualified plan that had to be provided to all employees and to those individuals under the ACA. And as part of the qualified plan, you you needed to have contraception coverage available. Now, there was a religious exemption that was um, made available as part of the ACA, basically saying that um, religious organizations were not required to provide contraception to their employees and that those individuals would have to pay out of pocket for their contraception. Hobby Lobby, the kind of craft store chain, also filed a lawsuit under the Religious Freedoms Restoration Act of 1993, basically saying that the government cannot enact a law that substantially burdens a person's exercise of religion, which is what the RFRA says. And so they specifically targeted the uh, a number of, some of the FDA-approved contraceptive methods. They did not target all of them. They only really covered or they only sued based on a handful of those. And that was Plan B, One Step, Ella, Copper IUD, and IUD with progestin, under the argument that those can prevent implantation of a fertilized egg. So that was the substance of the Hobby Lobby case. It was argued by the government first that Hobby Lobby was a corporation and therefore was not covered under the RFRA. That the, you know, they argued that the RFRA only applies to individuals and does not apply to a corporation. Now, in many other aspects of, of the law, it's established that a corporation is a person. So, um, unsurprisingly, the Supreme Court of the United States rules that a corporation is a person, and as such, they uh, comply with the Religious Freedoms Restoration Act. So this clears the way for the Supreme Court, then, to consider the question of whether the ACA substantially burdens a corporation's exercise of religion under the RFRA. So, again, the first question they asked they have to ask is, is this a burden? So under the ACA, it taxes a company $100 per affected person for not providing a qualified plan. So in Hobby Lobby's case, this is about $1.3 million per day or close to $500 million per year. So the Supreme Court says, yes, this is a burden. In addition... If Hobby Lobby were to drop coverage and send their employees to the exchange, and even one of those employees requires a subsidy, then they must pay $2,000 per employee per year under the employer mandate, and this amounts to an additional $26 million per year. It is determined that it is a burden. So the next argument was that the company provides insurance 
not the contraception. It remains for the covered employee to obtain one of the four disputed methods of contraception. Or in other words, is it wrong for Hobby Lobby to, to perform this act, which is provide the insurance that is innocent in and of itself, but has the effect of enabling or facilitating an act which they deem to be problematic through the use of these four methods of contraception. Now, SCOTUS, um, I call the Supreme Court of the United States. It is sometimes abbreviated as SCOTUS, just like the President of the United States is sometimes abbreviated as POTUS. So the Supreme Court states in Hobby Lobby that the federal courts do not have a business addressing whether the religious belief assertion is reasonable or not. Restated, it is not for us as the Supreme Court to say that the religious beliefs are mistaken or unsubstantial. Instead, their narrow function is to determine in the context of the suit whether or not there was an honest conviction that they held. Okay, so the Supreme Court was not in this case going to get into the argument or try to settle the argument of beginning of life, etc. They basically said that if there's an honest conviction on the part of, of the person asserting the need for protections under the RFRA, then it was enough to move the question forward. So since it was determined by the Supreme Court that it was, in fact, a substantial burden, then in Part 2, they needed to consider whether or not the law provided, number one, a furtherance of a compelling government interest, and two, is, does it also provide for the least restrictive method of furthering that compelling government interest? So on the question of the furtherance of compelling government interests, the Supreme Court of the United States has already ruled that there's a constitutional right to birth control. And that was under a case, Griswold, citation is 381 U.S. 479, for those of you that um, are familiar with legal citation. And that would be the way that it could be looked up. Griswold, 381 U.S. 479. And in this case, they agree that providing cost-free access to the four challenged methods of contraception is, in fact, compelling. So they rule okay on furtherance of a compelling government interest. They must now rule on two And on the question of whether or not this is the least restrictive measure, because both of these have to be in place, and they've given thumbs up to number one, saying that there's compelling government interest in providing birth control, they have to determine whether or not this is the least restrictive measure that the government could use to provide for that. And so... The Supreme Court basically says that the government feels strongly that these four measures are of high priority, then they should consider underwriting it. Since the ACA will cost $1.3 trillion at this point in time that they estimate over 10 years, the Supreme Court says that would not be a large amount for the government to just underwrite it. 
and not transfer the responsibility to the employer. And they also say that you have already, under the ACA, provided a safe harbor for religious organizations. So the Supreme Court says, you know, you've, you've provided this safe harbor for religious organizations, so this must not be the least restrictive measure. And the Supreme Court rules thumbs down on part two. Basically, what the Supreme Court says in Hobby Lobby is that you cannot compel closely held companies implying that the family nature of Hobby Lobby and their, and their religious convictions makes them a closely held company. Therefore, they cannot be compelled to provide health insurance to their employees that include contraception. So the Supreme Court rules against the ACA in this one and in favor of Hobby Lobby. Now, something that's interesting that the Supreme Court says in this case, which they sometimes do, is they want to make it clear that this ruling is specific to the contraception mandate challenge. And they say that this should not be construed as meaning as meaning that religious objections could be claimed to turn down coverage for vaccination, to create discriminatory hiring practice, or, interestingly enough, to not pay your income taxes because you have a religious objection to something that the government is doing, like war. Okay, So just an interesting side statement that the Supreme Court says in Hobby Lobby. And they also say that the balance of the ACA remains intact. So they're not going to rule that because of this that the ACA is unconstitutional. Religious organizations are therefore not required as they originally were under the Act to provide contraception as part of their plans. And employees who are employed and receive their benefits from religious organizations are going to likely or could pay out of pocket. Closely held companies under the ACA, though, there's a little bit of a a switch up here in that they say that the employer is not required to provide a health insurance plan that has contraceptive coverage included in it, but the company that is involved has to provide under a separate channel completely Um, kind of a keyhole product providing access to those individuals for contraception um, at no additional cost. All right, one more federal court challenge that I'll go over to close out the day is the state-based health insurance exchange. So under the Affordable Care Act, states are required to create a state-based web portal to access as the access point for needed health insurance. And the original draft of the ACA made this also a requirement of all states. This was um, changed to an opt-in, opt-out, okay, before approval. Um, And it can be accessed by individuals and businesses up to 100 employees. It must include two multi-state plans, and it creates uh, some co-ops, that uh, are available at the state level for health insurance. As we've looked at states going forward, 
that have opted in, as I said in the first podcast, these are predominantly Democratic states and states that have opted out and asked their residents to go to the federal exchange have uh, are predominantly Republican states. Another legal challenge, which went to the, to the Supreme Court, basically said that if the law states that individuals who purchase qualified plans on state exchanges are eligible for these tax credits, then individuals who purchase their plans through the federal portal are not. And as such, the ACA should be declared unconstitutional. Now, at this point in time, the government acknowledges that states could not be forced to bring up exchanges because it's unconstitutional to compel or coerce a state to enact and enforce a federal regulatory program. And the IRS of the federal government has chosen to extend the subsidies to all individuals. So the IRS has basically said, yes, we understand you guys have this argument, but we are going to go ahead and provide the credits whether the individual obtain their plan through a state exchange or the federal exchange. So a number of states file suit. In the case of Halbig versus Burwell, the D.C. court rules the IRS is imposing taxes that are never authorized by Congress. On the same day in a separate filing, King versus Burwell, the Fourth Circuit Court ruled the other way that the interpretation of the IRS is, impor- is appropriate. So we have two separate district courts. One rules that the IRS doesn't have the authority to do this. Another court rules that it does. As a result, it is appealed to the Supreme Court. So the question to the Supreme Court uh, is whether or not states using federal exchange still should receive subsidies. Again, we have the court made up in the same way that we discussed before. We have Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, Roberts, and Alito, who are Republican presidential appointees, and Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, who are Democratic president appointees. So on the question of whether states using federal exchanges still will have the residents receive subsidies, then Republican appointees Kennedy and Roberts vote yes. In addition to Democratic appointees Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. So it is therefore ruled that federal exchanges qualify for subsidies. In essence, the majority base their opinion on the intention of Congress and that they intended to enact a law that would require what we call guarantee issue, meaning that you cannot be denied, that they provided for adjustments in community ratings, which is a prevention against insurers varying premiums in a region based on things like age, gender, health status, etc., in an attempt to stabilize employers' costs. And that the two of these can only operate with coverage and requirements that allow the tax credits to flow from any origin. 
So as a result, they ruled that the Congress must have intended for everyone to get it, even though they kind of slipped up in the language that said you only get the tax, you get the tax credits by obtaining coverage through state exchanges. So in today's episode, we get to see behind the political curtain a little bit and see some of the lawsuits and the impact that the Supreme Court rulings have and look a little bit at how political appointment might translate into Supreme Court rulings. In our next podcast, we're going to look at Texas versus the United States, which is the most current lawsuit traveling through federal district court, which is challenging the ACA, could potentially cause it to be deemed unconstitutional. We'll see you in the next episode, and thank you for joining us on the politics of healthcare in the U.S.